Um, do you remember the first time you ever heard the gospel? Um, for some of you, that's a hard question. Some of you maybe are here and you're like, I don't know if I've ever heard it. And we're like thrilled that, Corlin, can you control your child? Uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I know that he can take a joke. That's <laughs> um, some of you might be here and you're like, I don't know if I've ever heard the gospel. And we're thrilled that you're here. Um, some of you, that's a hard question because, like me, my, my experience was you just kind of grew up always hearing it, right? If you grew up in maybe a Christian family or going to church, to like pinpoint the first time you ever heard the gospel, um, that's, that's kind of a difficult question. But I know for some of you, you're like, you might even have the date. Yes, May 3rd, 1970, or whatever, right? So... It's just interesting to think about that. When did you first hear the gospel? I can, I can remember two very specific occasions in my life where it was like I was hearing the gospel for the very first time. Like I said, like I grew up, my dad's a pastor, Christian family. I grew up going to church my whole life, and it was just kind of like you just heard the gospel all the time. But I can remember that in my grade nine year, our youth group went to this big youth rally um, that they uh, used to do a lot more, and you know, in a stadium, and there's 10,000 teens there. And I rem- I don't remember who the preacher was, but after the bands played, the the preacher got up and he just preached uh, just a very straightforward. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This is what Jesus has done for you. And even though I, I grew up my whole life hearing it. I just sat there like entranced by hearing this, and it was like, I've never heard this before. That's what Jesus has done for me. And I remember at the end, it was like, come down if you want to receive Jesus. And I went, and maybe this was like the 40th time I had asked Jesus to (laughs) come into my life, because if you grew up, you know what I'm talking about. It was like, I sinned. I got to ask Jesus to come back into my heart. Uh, But I remember going, because I was just so captivated. That's what Jesus did for me, and it was like the gospel clicked, and it made sense. And I gave my life to to Christ that night. Now, fast forward like a decade, and I'm a youth pastor uh, in a church in Maple Ridge. So I am in in charge of teaching teens about the gospel. And we had a a senior pastor named uh, Mark Birch, who's one of my mentors. And he came, and for two years, he preached through the book of Romans. And I can remember every Sunday for like two years just weeping being like, I don't think I've ever heard the gospel before. And I'm like, I'm a pastor? And I feel like I'm hearing the gospel for the first time, just week after week after week. He just walked through the book of Romans, and it would just hit me every single week, just being like, this is unbelievable. Have I never heard this before? This is unreal that, that God would do this for us. I think sometimes we have a view in the church, if you're a Christian, or if you're a church member, or whatever, I think sometimes we have this view that the gospel is for lost people. The gospel is something that you share with someone who is not a follower of Jesus, and then once you become a believer, then you kind of graduate, and you move on to deeper and bigger things, And, and the gospel... For some of you, it's kind of like, well, that's the ABCs. That's like the beginning. And then once you master the ABCs, then you move on to the next thing. Um, Even in years past, uh, I can remember this. We would have Salvation Sundays. That's the Sunday where we're going (laughs) to preach the gospel. So bring all your lost friends, 
and then they'll hear the gospel because the gospel's for them, and then they'll get saved. And it was like once a year, today is salvation Sunday. Listen, I think maybe the motivation is, is fine for that. We want lost people to hear the gospel, but it sends the message that if you're a follower of Jesus, the gospel's not really for you. It's for your friends that don't know Jesus yet. Um, we've been in the book of 1 Corinthians uh, for a while now, and we're, we're arriving at chapter 15, and Paul is going to address a new issue in Corinth. We've called this series Messy Church, if you haven't been walking through this book with us, because the church in Corinth was a mess. Um, we look at churches today, and we're like, oh, why can't we be like the early church? I'm like, really? You want They were a mess. They're just like us. And so Paul has been writing this, he's written this letter addressing all of these problems. Now, if you remember in chapters 12, 13, and 14, Paul addressed the issue of spiritual gifts, specifically prophecy, speaking in tongues. There was all of this confusion around that, and some gifts are better, and I'm better than you because I have this gift. And their church gatherings on, uh, were just a mess. They were chaotic. So Paul's just addressed all that. And now in chapter 15, he's like, okay, that problem is dealt with. Now, Paul, in chapter 15, is going to address the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, in verse 12 of chapter 15, we're told that there were some in the church who were saying there is no resurrection from the dead. The idea that, uh, you know, after we die, at the end, we're all, our bodies are resurrected, and then we spend eternity, like, pinch yourself, like, in a physical body, there were people that just said, that just, that's just not true. Now, here's where this com comes from. Um, this is a major theological issue, but many people in the Greco-Roman world believed that death extinguished life completely. Uh, so that when you died, it was like body, soul, snuffed out, both. There's nothing after that. Or some believed that when you died physically, you just kind of like passed into the shadow world. So I was trying to think of a modern example. So if you're a nerd, um, Lord of the Rings. Um, my, my wife and I just watched those movies over our sabbatical. So if you know the ring wraiths, like the Black Riders, they, do, they actually don't have like physical bodies. They belong to the shadow world, right? And when Frodo puts on the ring, it's he can see the shadow. That's kind of what their thought was. You don't have a physical body anymore when you die. You just kind of exist in this uh, ether up there, and it's just kind of this shadowy, non-physical place. So the idea that Christians were saying, actually, there is physical existence after death, it was thought to be laughable, like, what? That is just so ridiculous. That's like kids' stories, that you come back to life after you die and you spend forever in a physical body. So there were people in the church, as the resurrection of Jesus and the implications are being taught, they're like, that's just so, there's no resurrection from the dead. So Paul then is now going to address that because, listen, that's a, like, we're going to see, that is a major theological issue. But like Paul often does, he begins in verses 1 to 11 by laying some groundwork for us. Hasn't he done that with like every issue he's addressed? He doesn't just come in hot and be like, heresy! He, he lays the, ground, the groundwork, the foundation, and then he builds his argument off of that. So in verses 1 to 11, Paul is going to tell them, here's what the gospel is. And so what we're going to see is Paul's going to tell them, Four things 
about the gospel. And so we're just going to walk through verses 1 to 11 and, and talk about those four things and the implications for us. So number one, um, the gospel is something to be remembered. So verse 1, Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. So Paul starts by saying, okay, I'm going to remind you of the gospel. And again, if, you're, if your view is, well, the gospel is for lost people, then you go, well, why is Paul? They're all Christians. Paul's writing to a church Two believers, and Paul starts by saying, okay, I need to remind you of the gospel. And we go, well, why? They're already saved, Paul. So here's the first point. The gospel is something that must be remembered. You need the gospel not just for your salvation. Right? He kind of gives the, uh, the, the past and the present and the future applications of the gospel, doesn't he? He says, I'm reminding you of the gospel I preached to you. <clears throat> Here's the first thing. Which you received. That's past tense. So the, the people in Corinth heard the gospel. The life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, faith in him. They heard that and they received it. Past tense. So that's, Paul's talking about their salvation. Right? So if you're in, in Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up and he preaches this uh, message to thousands of people and they hear the gospel. And then we're told in Acts 2.41, so those who received his word were baptized. So there it is again, right? The, the gospel is something that you receive. You believe it, right? And that, when that happens, you are saved, so Paul says, yes, that happened. You've received the gospel. Then he goes on and, and says, present tense, the gospel is something in which you stand. Which is interesting because we're like, wait, well, wait, if the gospel is just past tense, I've been saved. No, the gospel is present tense. You are standing in the gospel, meaning it's the foundation of everything we believe, of your entire faith. You don't move on from it. You are standing in it. And then Paul, future tense, says, and by which you are being saved. And you kind of go, well, that's, I thought I was saved. How, how can it be that I have received the gospel, I'm standing in the gospel, and I'm also, future tense, being saved by, by the gospel. Another word for this is sanctification. It's the daily process of you as a follower of Jesus becoming more and more and more like Jesus. And do you know what does that? Well, clearly the Holy Spirit, but it's the gospel that sanctifies us. So notice what Paul is saying. Why is he reminding them of the gospel? Because you need it. You need it to be saved, you need it to stand in, and you need it to be, to be sanctified. See, I think lots of times we view, like I, I've said, because this was my understanding growing up, I believe the gospel, and now I just have to try really, 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 really hard to be good enough, to like kind of prove, right, Jesus, I believe in you, but look at all the good things I've done now. Now will you accept me and let me into heaven? But actually, it's the gospel that sanctifies us. So let me give you a couple examples. 
um, when, you, when you talk about, okay, as a follower of Jesus, we shouldn't seek revenge, right? Biblically, uh, oh, don't put that slide up yet. Uh, biblically, um, we should not seek revenge. So if your neighbor does something to you, as a follower of Jesus, I shouldn't go and puncture all my neighbor's tires and be like, we're even now. Right? And, and so as a Christian, you would say, well, why? And one of the answers, well, the Bible says so. So don't do that. Be a good person, which is not necessarily wrong. But if I'm actually trying to become more like Jesus, why don't I seek revenge? Well, 1 Peter 2.23 tells us about Jesus. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So when I'm wronged, why don't I seek revenge? Well, Jesus was nailed to a cross, and, and he didn't seek revenge. I want to be like Jesus. So look, it's the gospel that, that then speaks into my life and goes, don't seek revenge because Jesus didn't. Be like him. So it's not just, just obey because I say so. No, look to your Savior. You want to be like him? Well, then the truth of the gospel of what he did then changes your heart. And even though you are wronged, you go, well, you know what? I don't have to seek revenge. Why? Jesus didn't seek revenge. And he was wronged way more than I've been wronged. So the gospel changes you. Um, a few years ago, one of our uh, children uh, was kind of telling some lies. And so if you're a parent, you probably know this happens, right? And it, it was very frustrating. It was like, man, just over silly stuff too. Like, what? You don't have to lie about that. And so we were trying to uh, discipline them and teach them. And it was kind of like, you know, we don't lie. It's wrong. It's wrong to lie. And I remember at one point um, trying to deal with the, uh, a thing that had happened. And it was like, I, I said the words, uh, we do not lie in this family. And then the Holy Spirit was like, Really, Andrew? You lie sometimes. And I was like, oh, man. So then how do, I, how do I teach my kids as followers of Jesus? Why don't we lie? You could say, well, because the Bible says so. Don't do it. Or how does the gospel speak into that? You know what? Why do we lie? We lie because oftentimes we're trying to cover up something wrong that we've done because there's shame and guilt so rather than come into the light and say, yes, I have sinned, I have messed up, I did something wrong, I'm confessing it to you, then what? We lie because we're like, oh man, if I get caught, it's going to be worse, so I'm going to tell lies. So I remember then speaking to our children being like, when you do something wrong, you don't have to lie. Why? Jesus has set you free from that. You actually don't have to hide. It's actually, wait, when you do something wrong, yes, there's still consequences, but you can run to us and say, I messed up. And you can run to Jesus and say, I have sinned. You don't have to hide and lie about it anymore. Do you see? Like, it's a different approach. The gospel is changing hearts, not just moralism. Don't do bad things. It's the gospel that is saying, because of Jesus, you don't have to hide anymore. You don't have to hide in shame and regret. Bring your sin to Jesus. This is why Paul says you, you have to be reminded of the gospel over and over and over and over again. Um, there's a book called Gospel Fluency. And basically the author talks about that the gospel, it's like learning a language. So uh, some of you may use Duolingo 
which is like an app where you learn a different language. My, uh, my dad, I think he's on day 1,000 whatever in a row, so three years every day to practice Spanish. Uh, and my daughter, Lucy, has started doing Duolingo to practice Spanish. And you, you practice and you go over it and you study and then you go back and you go over the same lesson to practice it. Um, the the gospel is kind of the same thing. You will never be fluent in the gospel if you don't constantly remind yourself of it. And you go, well, how does the gospel speak into this situation and into this situation? How do I use the gospel to approach this person or this part of my life? You have to be fluent in it. So if you never practice, then you'll have no idea how the gospel speaks into every situation of life. And listen, it does. The gospel speaks into every situation in life. So Paul's saying, you have to remember it. There's, I should invent an app, Duolingo for the gospel, and then every day you can just practice it because that's what we have to do. You will never be fluent in a language if you don't practice. And so what Paul is saying, I want to remind these Christians, you have to be reminded of the gospel. That's what changes you. That's what sanctifies you. And here's what happens when we don't. If you don't remember and practice and rehearse the gospel to yourself, you will inevitably fall into one of two ditches. You will inevitably fall into trying to earn your own salvation or legalism or whatever you want to call it where you go, I am obeying all the rules and God must be very impressed with me and I am earning my salvation and then you'll begin to look down on other people who aren't as far along as you are. If you forget the gospel, you will fall into that ditch. Or you'll fall into the other ditch where you will begin to justify a sinful lifestyle. Where you go, you know what, it's fine if I do this. It's not a big deal if I do this. And I mean, Paul addresses that in Romans chapter 6. Shall we keep on sinning so that grace abounds? No. But if you don't rehearse the gospel and what Jesus paid to, to free you from sin, then you will inevitably fall into the ditch of just living a licentious life. I can do whatever I want. Freedom. The gospel is something that must be remembered. Secondly, um, the gospel must be held fast. So Paul says, like, this is the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, verse 2, by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So Paul, Paul says, you believe the gospel, you're standing in it, you're being saved by it, and then there's a big if, if you make it to the end. And then Paul says, or else you actually didn't believe. Um, this verse sometimes is used to kind of dis, to, uh, to prove that you can lose your salvation. See? Assurance of salvation? No, look, it says if. So you can become a Christian, and then you can lose your salvation. And then you can become a Christian, and then you can lose. Listen, this verse is not an assurance of salvation question. This verse is a believing in vain question. It has nothing to do with assurance of salvation. It has everything to do with, did you believe in vain? Was it actually belief? So here's what Paul seems to be suggesting. It is possible for you to hear the gospel, to say, sure, I believe in that, and yet to have believed in vain and not make it 
in the end. And the evidence of that is that you didn't hold fast till the end. Um, Jesus spoke about this in a parable. Um, Jesus told many, many stories as he taught. And in Matthew 13, he talks about, uh, he, he told a story about a farmer that sows a bunch of seeds, right? Because agriculture, his audience would have connected to that. Well, yeah, we know exactly what you're talking about. We're farmers. And so he said one day, you know, a farmer goes out and he, and he sows seeds, right? They would have a bag of seeds and then the farmer would go and throw it on his field. And he said, well, some of the seeds falls on the path that would, that would be through the field that people would walk on. And well, what happens? Well, the path is hard and packed down, and, and then the birds just come and, and eat the seed, and nothing grows there. He's, uh, Jesus says some then fall on rocky ground, and, and some plants kind of spring up, but there's no depth, and there's no roots, and then the sun comes out, and it scorches it, and the plant dies. Jesus says some uh, is sown among the thorns, which... The, th- the weeds and the thorns just kind of choke out the plant and so it dies. And then he says some seed is thrown on the good soil. And what happens? It produces grain. And so everyone's confused because that often happens. They're like, what does this mean? And his disciples ask him, what does this mean? And in Matthew um, 13, uh, 18 to 23, uh, Jesus tells them, this is what the parable means. He says, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. That is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy, and yet has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. I think the point of the parable is Jesus is not talking about four people who truly, deeply believed, who received the gospel, were filled with the Holy Spirit, and then one day said, I don't want to be a Christian anymore. Jesus is not talking about people who were producing fruit and then, oh, shoot, they lost their salvation. I think Jesus is talking about people who believed in vain, who heard the gospel and were like, sounds great, sign me up, and then stuff happened and they went, oh, actually, I don't want that. Did they actually believe that then? Look, there's lots of evidences that someone is truly a born-again follower of Jesus, right? The Bible talks about fruit of the Spirit. If you have confessed that Jesus is Lord, we can look for evidence. Oh, yes, they're growing in the fruit of the Spirit. They're growing in their love of their neighbor and of of God. Do you want to know what is the 100% evidence that someone is truly born again? They make it till the end. They hold fast They don't give up. Then you know that person was born again. They made it to the end. They held fast. So the gospel is something that we, as followers of Jesus, have to hold fast to. Um, I was a youth pastor for eight years. 
And uh, our, our youth group was blessed to have, you know, 150 teens in it. And, and I saw lots of teens at different events we would throw, at different things that we would do. He would say, you know, fill out the card, raise your hand if you want to follow Jesus. And I saw dozens of teens who were like, yep, I baptized some of them. And I'm friends with some of them still. And very, very, very few are still following Jesus. And the Apostle Paul would seem to say, well, they actually believed in vain. Now, again, I'm not discounting that. Maybe God one day is going to snatch them and they'll truly believe the gospel. Maybe they're just wandering away. Again, there's so many variables. But as I, I think about the dozens and dozens of teens who came to know Jesus, supposedly, and were baptized, and now... I'm not even talking about like, oh, we're just nominal Christians. Like, they hate Christianity now. I go, I don't, I don't think you actually believed. Why? Because you're not holding fast. The gospel has to be held fast. Thirdly, the gospel is a fact. This one is, is going to be fun. The gospel is a fact. Verse 3, he says, for I delivered to you... As of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me." So what, what Paul is doing is he's, he's, he's laying out, this is what the gospel is, and he's saying you can believe the gospel because it is historically reliable. The resurrection is not a fairy tale that we believe. It is a historical fact. There is overwhelming evidence that the resurrection of Jesus happened. Now, I know that lots of times um, people who maybe are opposed to Christianity or, you know, we have very popular atheists like um, Christopher Hitchens and all those kind of guys that wrote books on how ridiculous Christianity is. A lot of times they'll be like, the resurrection is a joke. It's a fairy tale. It never happened. It, it is actually intellectually dishonest if you just brush off all of the evidence for the resurrection. You're, ac- you're actually fooling yourself. If you just say, the resurrection sounds impossible so it couldn't have happened, there is overwhelming evidence historically that it happened. So Paul says, first, um, the scriptures predicted it. He, He says Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. What does he mean? He means that there were Jewish writings, the Old Testament, that that were written hundreds, if not a thousand years before the events of Jesus took place, and they all predicted the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. I'll give you a few. Um, the crucifixion of Jesus, there's lots of examples of what, what Jesus would suffer, but in Psalm twenty two sixteen it says, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. It's, it's talking of Jesus. Like hundreds of years before it happened, the Jewish scriptures, our Old Testament, said it would happen. Jesus' hands and feet would be pierced. 
What about his burial? Um, Isaiah 53, 9. They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Who, who buried Jesus? Joseph of Arimathea, a very rich man. So like hundreds of years before Jesus was buried, Isaiah said he's going to be buried with all the other wicked. Like not a fancy burial, not a, a, a grave for a righteous, holy person. He's just going to be buried with all the other wicked people, and it's a rich man who's going to bury him. And it happened. The resurrection. Now, there's so many shadows and examples and metaphors that are used in the Old Testament to talk about the, the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, Hosea 6.2 uh, has a meaning for the Israels in that day, but it also has a future meaning. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up. You know, well, Jesus was raised on the third day. That's interesting. So listen, like up to a thousand years before it happened, the Jewish writings... Our Old Testament, the scripture said, Jesus is going to be crucified, he's going to be buried, and he's going to be raised from the dead. Um, the second uh, historical fact about the gospel is that there was eyewitness testimony. Um, listen, hundreds of people saw Jesus alive after he had been publicly executed by Rome. It's, it's not as if one guy in the backwater village was like, I saw Jesus, and his eyes are crossed. No, not, not that at all. The opposite of that. Literally hundreds of people said, I saw Jesus executed. Three days later, I saw him alive standing in front of me. Uh, Paul tells us, Peter saw him. That's Cephas is another name for Peter. Peter saw him. Then the 12 saw him. Then 500 people at one time saw him. And Paul says, most of these people are still alive. Then he appeared to James, which is the half-brother of Jesus. Then to all the apostles. And then Paul says, then he appeared to me as well. Like, you have to understand. Like, eyewitness testimony is huge. All the, all the disciples saw Jesus alive after he'd been killed. 500 people, who most of them were still alive as Paul writes this, saw Jesus alive at one time. Like, that's, that's double the amount of people in this room. So think about it. If you were here on Christmas Eve in the first service, there were 600 people here. That's all, that crowd seeing Jesus alive at the same time. Then James is huge. James is the half-brother of Jesus. And do you know, we're, we're told in the Gospels, did Jesus' family believe that he was the Son of God? Nope. They thought he was crazy. So then to have James, the half-brother of Jesus, say, actually, I was wrong. I saw Jesus alive. My half-brother, he is God. And then he becomes a pillar in the church, and he's killed for following Jesus. You go, man, that is a powerful eyewitness testimony. Let me remind you, um, 1 Corinthians was written like 55, 56 AD. That's only 20 years after Jesus was raised from the dead. Like, it's, it's not as if Jesus was raised from the dead, we had some eyewitness testimonies, and then Paul writes this letter 500 years later. Like, 20 years. Let me put it into perspective. 9-11, um, just over 20 years ago. And it would be the same as saying, okay, I heard that some planes crashed into the Twin Towers. I wonder how I could figure out if that happened. Go ask the people who were there. 
There, there were hundreds, thousands of people in New York who watched it happen. So you don't have to scratch your head. I wonder if it happened. Ask them. It's the same. Paul's saying, listen, there are hundreds of people alive today who saw the resurrected Jesus standing in front of them. Go ask them about it. The gospel's a fact. It happened. Now, listen, there's lots of opposition that comes up, and usually oppositions to the, to the resurrection of Jesus comes from people who just don't want to believe in Jesus. Because if the resurrection happened, then I'm accountable to God. So let's just let's give reasons why it didn't happen. Some people say, well, Jesus didn't, didn't actually die. Maybe he just kind of was really hurt, and then he fainted, and then they put him in the tomb, like, you have, to, you, have to, you have to understand, that is medically impossible. The, the Roman guards were professionals at torturing and murdering people. They don't make mistakes. And when you understand that Jesus was whipped, he was beaten, he was nailed to a cross, which is the, the most horrific way a human being can die... And then, just to top it all off, to make sure that Jesus was dead, a Roman soldier shoved a spear in his side into his heart. Like, I don't, I don't think then, okay, Jesus, oh, he just fainted. And then they put him in a, in a tomb. And then three days later, oh, he woke up and said, man, I feel great. I'm going to move this huge stone away and then go and appear to all my disciples. Not like, call the doctor. Like, it's, it's laughable to say that, oh, Jesus didn't really die. It's impossible. Some that say that, well, maybe his body was just stolen. So maybe he actually died. And then maybe his disciples, who if you read, were the bravest men in the world, came and stole his body. Like, listen, it's impossible. Because a massive stone was rolled in front of his tomb. It was sealed. A Roman uh, guard was put in front of, like, trained professionals. And to say that 12 disciples who all ran away at the first sign of trouble, who lied to a slave girl, do you know Jesus? No! Then became very brave and snuck past a Roman guard, rolled the stone away, took the body of Jesus, and then all lied about it, and were all brutally killed for the lie. Mm. It's impossible. Some people say, well, maybe just um, a bunch of people hallucinated, which again is impossible. Listen, 500 people at one time don't all hallucinate the same thing. Some say, well, maybe, maybe just the disciples made everything up. But listen, I've, I've told you before that the, the life of Jesus and his death is a historical fact, not just confirmed by the Bible. History itself says Jesus of Nazareth was a real man and he was very really crucified by the Romans. No one argues that. So to say, oh, maybe the disciples made it all up and then they hid the body and then they just kind of were using it to gain power and spread this new religion. Like, listen, it's, it's laughable. All the disciples were brutally tortured and murdered. No one does that for a lie. Like Peter crucified upside down. Would, would you do that for a lie? Tell us, is Jesus? No, I, I swear he's real. No one is brutally executed for a lie. 
So when you add up all the evidence, the, the resurrection of Jesus is a fact. It is intellectually dishonest to deny it. So the God, like, listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, you should rejoice. Lots of times people, oh, Christianity is just blind faith. It is not. The gospel is a fact. The resurrection happened. All of the evidence points towards it. It's the only logical conclusion, which means Jesus is who he says he is, and he did what he said he would do. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, and you've been on the fence, and you're kind of like, well, I don't know if this is true or not, you need to hear, it's true, it happened. Uh, Lastly, we got to hustle. Number four, um, the gospel drives our worship. In verse 8, Paul says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Um, It's an interesting phrase when Paul says, um, Last of all, to one untimely born. That's the Greek phrase, ektroma, and it's the word for a miscarriage or an aborted fetus. That's like really intense language, Paul. Paul says, last of all, to someone like me, like a miscarriage, an aborted fetus, God appeared. What does he mean by that? Why is he using such strong language? Because Paul's saying, I can't believe that it happened to me. Something so dead being made alive. It's like, man, that is a miracle. An an aborted fetus being brought to life. Paul's like, that's what I was. It's like, man, I don't deserve that. He says, why? I, I killed Christians. Paul says, I persecuted the church, and yet God showed grace to someone like me. He goes on, verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Do, do you see that the gospel drives everything about Paul's life. Paul is emphasizing the miracle of the undeserved, life-giving, sovereign grace of God to someone like him. And then he says, like, that's what drives me. I am what I am solely by the grace of God. And then he says, whether I preach to you or someone else, man, I don't care. I just want you to believe. Like, Paul works hard, but it's God's grace that's working in him. Um, If you remember in Philippians 3, Paul had lots of reasons to boast. He says, uh, if anyone thinks you have reason to boast, I have more. Paul says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul says, I had all of these things. But do you know what my soul was like? A dead fetus. None of that counted for anything. And yet, miracle of miracles, God breathed life into me and he saved me. 
Listen, we could fill in all of our, our little things. I was born into a Christian family. Son of a pastor. Parents were missionaries. Right? A 98% church attendance record. On and on and on. And what Paul is saying is that matters for nothing. We are all dead. And the Holy Spirit made you alive because of the grace of God. That should drive your worship. Now, I don't mean just singing, but yes, singing on Sundays. But your whole life, because Paul's describing you. That's you as well. Dead, and yet God showed you grace. So it's like, man, why do I want to obey Jesus? Why do I want to be generous and give away my money and my possessions? Why do, why do I want to spend time, instead of going to vacation in Hawaii, why do I want to go serve people in Mexico? Why do I want to do this? It's the gospel. It drives us. What, what else could we do yet give our lives to this Savior who saved us? The gospel drives our worship. The same amazing grace that Paul says was given to him, it was given to you. So as we start a new year, um, in God's timing, I think just being reminded of the gospel again to encourage us for 2024, that the gospel is something that you need to remember. And so maybe this is the year that you say, you know what, every day I want to be gospel fluent I want to learn how to speak the gospel into all these situations. I'm going to rehearse it when my feet hit the floor when I get up in the morning. I'm going to rehearse what Jesus has done, how incredible it is, the grace and the mercy that was. I'm going to remember it. Maybe this is the year that you're like, yeah, you know what? My, my fingers were kind of losing grip on it. I'm going to hold fast to the gospel this year. Nothing is going to shake it. Maybe this is the year that you've been wavering and you're like, I don't know if the gospel is true and there's so much up in the air about it. Listen, the gospel is a fact. It happened. Have confidence as you go into a new year to go, my, my faith isn't blind faith. It's faith based on fact. And then my prayer for me and for you as a church that it would be the gospel that drives our worship on Sunday mornings and in every other day, our giving, our serving, our love of God and neighbor, that it would be that God showed up to you, one untimely born, and he made you alive. So you would say, of course I have to give my life to him. So Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your word. What an encouragement it is. Thank you that The Apostle Paul wrote this letter, and in chapter 15, thank you God that he just so clearly laid out what it is that we believe. God, I, I pray that we would be a people who constantly remember the gospel, that it would just shape our lives. God, I pray for myself, help me to be more fluent in the gospel, that I would know how it, it speaks into all situations of life. Help us to practice and to rehearse the gospel so that we can then stand in it, but also be transformed by it. 
God, I pray that we would hold fast to the gospel, that we would not be people who believed in vain, but like we sang, that Jesus, you are our only hope, and that we would cling to that. Help us to have confidence that the life and death and resurrection of Jesus is a historical fact, that we can just have confidence in the gospel in which we stand, that we go, no, it's not a shaky foundation. It is sure. It happened. And, and God, I pray that the gospel would then drive our worship, that our worship would not be, uh, our lives would not be driven by guilt or shame or trying to earn our salvation, but it, w- it would be driven by love for you, Jesus, that you would come to us dead and you would make us alive. Would that drive our worship, Jesus? So thank you, God. Again, we are just a people blown away by your grace that you would do this for us. And so we thank you, and I pray that our lives would reflect our love and our gratitude to you, Jesus, our Savior and our King. And so we just pray all of this in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen.